with really polar opposite views on the Lord's Supper. On the one end of the spectrum, some of you will have been brought up, if you're brought up in a Christian environment, of course not, not everyone was, but some of you will have been brought up thinking that the Lord's Supper is pretty meaningless, pretty unimportant. Some of us might have even asked the question, why do we bother with this strange ritual at all? I was talking to someone this week who told me that the first time they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was a Chinese that they had up there um, in their youth group. And they got a pallet out and they sat on the floor like uh, Jesus and his disciples would have. And as they you know, had their honey chili chicken, uh, that was their form of the Lord's Supper together. They really don't think it matters at all. Others will have been brought up, been taught, that the Lord's Supper is the single most important thing that you can do for your Christian life. That the Lord's Supper is the most important thing that Christians do when they gather together. Because there, in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine literally transform into the body and blood of Jesus. What could be more miraculous? What could be more important? What we'll find here in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper, and this is the only place that the New Testament speaks of Christians celebrating the Lord's Supper. Paul's teaching here offers a corrective to both of those extremes. Because the people over here think it doesn't really matter. It's clear that for Paul, the Lord's Supper matters. It's not an optional extra for the Christian. But he also says that the most important part of the Lord's Supper isn't what happens to the bread and wine. In fact, he doesn't say anything happens to the bread and wine, but what happens to the hearts of those taking part. And indeed, what it says, what it proclaims to the world around us. As always, we're going to need God's help uh, to understand his words. I'm going to ask him to help us now by praying, and I will to pray with me. Heavenly Father, please help us find your Holy Spirit to understand these words. May they correct us, teach us, rebuke us, and train us in righteousness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you've been following along in our series through this explosive letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that there are a number, there have been a number of problems emerging in the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to address. And one of the whole hopes of presenting issues, arguing over who is the best Bible teacher, arguments about sex, arguments about court cases, arguments about food offered to idols, arguments about gender, and we'll see that in the coming weeks there's, there's disagreements about the Holy Spirit and the gifts and even the resurrection itself. I think you can make a pretty strong case that the underlying problem in the Corinthian church is division. And that all of these other arguments are really just symptoms of that core problem. These people were divided. Divided on favorite preachers, divided on what Christians could do sexually, divided on food offered to idols, just divided, split in two, sometimes more than two. And what we find here in the second half of chapter 11 
is that they were divided socially as well. The rich members of the church were excluding the poor members of the church. Now, at one level, this shouldn't really surprise us because we sort of learned a lot about the Corinthians as we worked our way through this letter, haven't we? They loved status. They loved presenting themselves as super spiritual, super intellectual, super gifted. They were, if you want to put it really bluntly, they were up themselves, weren't they? We've seen that. And this attitude was manifesting itself not just in areas of belief, about who was the best, about what Christians can and can't do, it was even manifesting itself in their celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago in chapter 10, you might remember we talked about the Lord's Supper there as well, and then we celebrated it together down here. And we saw from chapter 10 that the act of eating together is not simply the ingestion of sugar, water, carbohydrates, that eating together matters. That eating together is an expression of co-unity or community, or fellowship, partnership, communion. Communion with each other, and communion with Christ. And we saw, I hope you were convinced, that we also know this instinctively, even if we've never really thought about it. That's why table manners matter. That's why we eat at all of life's big events, baptisms, birthdays, graduation, weddings, even funerals. Eating together matters, and how we eat together matters. You might remember I asked you how you'd feel if you invited me for dinner, I came to your house, I put my headphones in, listened to a podcast, and scrolled through my phone the whole time. How we eat together matters. Our table matters. Communicate what we think about the people we're eating with. What we see is that the Corinthians' table manners were shocking. Look at verse 17. I put it on the screen here. Um, I think it's going to work. Um, it's not working. Is the ESP plugin the time to do it? Can you push that on for me anyway? Um, very small text. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm sorry. So look it up in your phone if you can't, uh, can't see it. It's not working. Oh, there we go. We are working. Excellent. But in verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe them in heart. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. These are some pretty strong words from Paul. Look at the end of verse 18. When we come together, it is not for better, but for worse. In other words, your church gatherings do more harm than good. You'd be better off not, com- not coming to church, in fact. It's that bad. 
preliminary hear what's going on in Corinth. It sounds, well, I certainly find it, it sounds really strange. Because the way that we practice the Lord's Supper, at one level, looks very different to how they would have practiced it. And that's true yeah, across the world. Uh, it looked very, very different in the first century than it does in the 21st century. You sort of wonder, you think about when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, it's kind of a little bit of bread, it's kind of a little cup of wine. How on earth could people be stuffed and others go hungry? How on earth could people get drunk of such a small cup of wine? But we need to remember that 2,000 years ago, the gathering of church looked quite different. There were no church buildings in the first century, none. Churches met in people's homes. And people's homes were small. And so the view they try and make in the largest homes of their members, which likely belonged to the wealthiest members of the congregation, that's what makes sense. So who's at the biggest house? We'll go and meet there. We met on Sunday, the New Testament makes that really clear. But remember, Sunday was not a day off in Corinth or anywhere in the Roman world. And so they likely met in the evenings after everyone had finished work. And it seems that in Corinth, probably because people were coming straight from work, they planned to have dinner together. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Well, maybe not. You see, what was happening was the wealthy members of the congregation ate all the food, they even got drunk, while there was nothing for the poor of the church. Now, why did this keep happening? How, how, how could this happen? Well, in the Corinthian homes, even rich people's homes, they weren't huge. And a good dining room would have had maybe 15 to 20 people. But lots of houses, and even the not-so-rich houses, had courtyards, atriums, I think they're called, courtyards, in the middle of the homes. And so you would have met in the dining room, and the meeting would have sort of spilled out into the courtyard. A little diagram here. This is sort of a floor plan of a first century church. You see the dining room there over on the right? And then you would have spilled out into the courtyard, and that's probably what the church, where the church service met. And you can imagine, it doesn't take a lot of imagination really to think, of the rich people. You know, they get off work early. You know, they're the boss, after all. You know, they, they, can, they, can go, they can take it off if they want. And they run to church with all of their other rich friends, and they get a seat at the dining table, because they're there first. And they say to themselves, well, sure, we'll just start anyway, because, you know, Sarah, she'll be manning her store, uh, so she'll not be here for a while. She's, she's got to pack it all down. And Johnny, well, well Johnny's a slave. And his master uh, won't let him off for another two hours. So there's no point, you know, letting all this good food get cold. In fact, well, we'll just open another bottle of wine while we're waiting. And then when the poorer members of the church, who might be around late because they had to work, there's nothing for them to eat. But the rich are stuffed and even drunk. And then they celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And Paul says this is an absolute disgrace. So much so that whatever they're doing, it is not the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Rich people. 
Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? The Corinthians' preferential practice, their favouring of the rich members of the church at the expense of the poor, was a fundamental denial of what Christ had done for them. You might remember we saw this two weeks ago that one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper was to express the unity that Christians enjoy in Christ. Here's the verse uh, 1 Corinthians 10 17. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one love. But the Corinthians had turned what was supposed to be an expression of their unity with each other in Christ into an activity that expressed division, even superiority. And Paul says something really strange. Paul says this is so serious that some people in the church were ill and had even died. Because they were abusing the Lord's Supper in this way. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is a bit strange, isn't it? Like, what on earth does this look like? What does this mean for, for church practice? I said earlier that there are sort of two extremes when it comes to the Lord's Supper. Some of us think it doesn't mean anything at all. Well, that can't really be an option, can it? Paul says that the Lord's Supper is so serious that misusing it, abusing it, has caused some people in Corinth to die. Now, this raises the important question, and it's a bit of a tangent, but it's important. The important question of physical suffering as a consequence of sin. The idea of God punishing people through sickness. And whenever we come to this idea, when we come to this question, we need to be very, very careful. Because you see, there are lots of people who are suffering. There are lots of people who are sick. There are lots of people suffering bereavement. We think that God is punishing them for something. I spoke to a woman last week, she told me just that. Loads of deaths in her family says, I thought God must be punishing me for something. If you've ever read the story of Job in the Old Testament, you will know that personal suffering is not necessarily a punishment from God for sin. That's the sort of overwhelming message of this 42 chapter book in the Old Testament. And then there's the words of Jesus. In John chapter 9, the disciples come across a blind man. And they ask Jesus, is he blind because of his own sin or because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, neither. 
In Luke 13, Jesus addresses a political and natural disasters. And he says that these things did not happen because of those individual people's sin. And so we need to be very, very careful that we don't attribute personal suffering in ourselves or in others to sort of individual sin. I'm sure some of you will know that this is an area where lots of well-meaning Christians do a lot of damage to others. The reason you're sick is because you've got a secret sin in your life. Well, the only reason that you haven't been healed is because you don't have enough faith. I know of someone who was told by members of a Christian group that many of us have heard of, I know some of us have been to and some go to, we're told by members of this group that God would heal them of their diabetes if they just had the faith to stop taking insulin. Friends, this is wrong. This is dangerous. This is evil. Because we are not God. And we're not apostles. We can never say with certainty that someone's suffering or sickness is a result of sin. In fact, if you look at the whole message of the Bible on balance, it's best to never assume that someone's suffering is a result of their own personal sin. However, here, in this specific instance, Paul tells the Corinthians that their terrible abuse of the Lord's Supper, something that's supposed to express unity in Christ, using that to express this unity, benefiting one Christian over another, is so serious that in this specific instance, it has caused suffering, even death. So if we are Christians, remember we're not God, but if we're Christians, I think there's a warning here. We should be very careful that we aren't eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, before we look at what that means and what that doesn't mean, I want to briefly think about that other extreme concerning the Lord's Supper, that the bread and wine actually turn into the body and blood of Jesus. Because some people think that this passage proves, you see, the Lord's Supper is, well, it's magical. Something happens to the bread and the wine, and if you don't do the Lord's Supper right, God is going to get you. But that's not right either. You can see that, you can see that a number of ways in the passage. I think the most obvious thing is that Paul never says that the Christian eats the body of Jesus. He never says that they drink the blood of Jesus. Three times, Paul repeats that the Christian eats bread and drinks the cup. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 28. Bread, bread, bread. The Lord's Supper and the elements of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine, are only bread and wine. And they 
remain bread and wine. Because Jesus' body is in heaven. And that's where he's coming back from. See the end of verse 36. But then they go back to Jesus' own words, which we see in the passage. But Jesus said to me, Aha, this is my body. And what does his mean? But Jesus also called himself a door, but he wasn't made of wood. He called himself a vine, though no leaves grew from him. He called himself a shepherd, but he was a carpenter and a teacher. Nothing special happens to the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. But that doesn't mean that nothing special happens to the Christian. Because the Christian is expressing their unity with each other in Christ. We've seen that again and again and again, haven't we? And the Christian is proclaiming the Lord's death as they eat and drink. And that is special. That is supernatural. There is nothing greater that anyone can do on this whole earth that proclaim the Lord's death. And that's what we do every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's what we do every time we open up God's Word and tell people the Gospel. That's what we do every time we run a life course. The Christian must proclaim the Lord's death. It is the most important thing that we do. And that's what happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Well, the question then becomes, how should the Christian celebrate the Lord's Supper? Paul says, don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. What does that mean? Well, some people think that it means that you really have to not sin within a certain period of time before taking the Lord's Supper. Now, it is a good and proper thing to confess your sins before taking part in the Lord's Supper together. We do it every week that we celebrate together. But the idea that you can't have sinned recently and then eat and drink together is absolute nonsense. Because the Lord's Supper is for sinners. I've heard a great story about a Scottish minister. No idea where when this happened. Speaking to a woman in this congregation, who wouldn't come forward to take the bread and the wine. And she said, I can't take it, I'm a sinner. And he says, Sister, the Lord's Supper is for sinners. It's absolutely right. So, how then do we eat and drink in a worthy manner? Well, in verse 19, Paul says, Anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself or herself. Now this does not mean to discern the literal flesh of Jesus. It's not what body means there. It's not the word, the word flesh is a different word to the word body. Body means the body of Christ. The church. That's what Paul said in chapter 10. We being many are one body. Same word. And then immediately after this passage, straight into chapter 12, 
But that's what chapter 12 is all about. We are all members of the body. We are all baptized in the one body. 19 times in chapter 12 alone, Paul uses the word body to describe the Christian. So discerning the body is not discerning the flesh of Jesus. It's discerning the body of Jesus, which is the church. Your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the Lord's Supper isn't first and foremost a moment between you and God. I think a lot of us tend to think that that's what church is. It's about you know, a little quiet time with just you and God. That's not what the Bible says. It's about church gathering together. It's, it's about you and everyone else around you hearing from God and speaking to God. So how do you discern the body? You look around and you think, God has included me, even me, in his people. That's what he said in verse 31. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now we're not celebrating the Lord's Supper tonight. We did it two weeks ago. We'll do it in two weeks' time. Well, we do in two weeks' time. It's good to pray on your brain. That's fine. But why don't you just lift your head up? And look around you and marvel at God's grace to you and to everyone else who is eating and drinking. Discern the body, we being men in our one body, for we all share in the one loaf. We proclaim his death until he comes. Jesus' death is, of course, at the center of what it means to be a Christian. And that's what communion remembers. That Jesus died for each one of us. His body was broken like the bread. His blood was poured out like the wine. So we could remember and proclaim his death until he comes. I think there's another important lesson for Christians of every age in this passage tonight. It's a question you need to ask yourself. Is there anyone in this church that you are divided from? That you're expressing disunity towards? Is there anyone that you need to apologize to? Is there anyone that you need to put things right with? Well, the great news is you've got two weeks to do it. Maybe we shouldn't even drink together until we've been reconciled. The funny thing is, Jesus himself taught a very similar principle in Matthew chapter 5. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, of course, Jesus said this under the old covenant. So it's not the exact same. Just, just want to put this on the record very I want to make it absolutely clear. The communion table is not an altar. That 
table up there is not an altar, it's a table. Whenever we bring the table down here, it is very clearly a table. Because we are not offering a sacrifice. But we are remembering what that Old Testament altar pointed towards. We're remembering the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. His death, which took the punishment for the sins of absolutely everyone who trusts in him. One of, maybe the, the greatest privilege of gathering together as a church is proclaiming the Lord's death. And as we do that together, we express our unity in him. But in Corinth, and maybe in here tonight, that unity, while it can be broken, it can be fractured. Fractured by sin, fractured by selfishness, fractured by thoughtlessness, self-centeredness, entitlement. No place for entitlement in the Christian life. We're a very entitled generation. I know you think I'm a lot older than you, but I'm not a lot older than you. I'm a little bit older than you. But we're a very entitled generation. There's no place for that in the Christian life. There's no place for that in the church. Some things might not be put right. Maybe tonight. Definitely before we eat and drink together around the Lord's table. It's really, really important. It's important so that we can truthfully proclaim our unity in Christ to our divided world. People like to say the world's never been more divided than it is now. I don't think that's true, but the world is certainly divided. And the church is the answer to that. Because in Christ, that's the only place that true unity can be found. So we need to put things right before we even drink together so that we can truthfully proclaim the unity we have in Christ and so that, and just as importantly, so that we can invite others. So that we can invite others to benefit from that broken body and the shared blood of the Lord Jesus. That's what communion of the Lord settles all about. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uniting us in Christ. Thank you for the immense privilege of being counted as a part of your people. Father, please help us by your Holy Spirit to not show preference or partiality with each other. We know there's no place for that among your people. Father, help us to love one another. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to set aside our entitlements. Help us to serve one another as we proclaim the Lord Jesus' death to a desperate and dying world. We ask all this in his name.